Welcome to the Nourishment Mindset Podcast, your guide to good food, good health, and a good life. And now, here's your host, Nutrition Network Advisor and author of the Nourishment Mindset, Dixie Huey. Happy Transformation Tuesday, y'all. Welcome to or back to the Nourishment Mindset Podcast, where we are on a metabolic mission to achieve vitality and reverse chronic lifestyle conditions using real whole food, straight talk, and the pleasures of the table. Today, I have a very special guest coming on, but before we get into that, I need to do a little bit of ranting and raving, okay? So what am I ranting and raving about? Well, later with Daniel, I'm going to be ranting and raving about uh, obese canines and horrible canine nutrition, which is the standard in the Western world. But before I get into talking about dogs, I want to talk about children, this makes me think of a, a play set in the South called Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, where uh, <laughs> there's a character, and I don't have the best memory, but she famously says, why are all your children named after dogs? And I think the dog or the kid, somebody was Dixie. So of course, I've actually met many more dogs named Dixie than I have people named Dixie. So Children, dogs, these are two important subjects for me. But what I'm ranting and raving about right now is some news that recently came out. Big Pharma is at it again uh, with their friends who they fund 75. They fund 75% of the FDA's um, organization. So if you think that the FDA is an independent governmental organization, you bees wrong. But let's get into the heart of it. The FDA uh, in late June approved two new diabetes drugs for children. So why is this an issue? Well, first of all, it's important to know that I'm talking about what was formerly called adult onset diabetes and is now called type two diabetes. So why is this a problem? Well, the two medications, drugs, Jardians and Sinjardi now are added to metformin, which is basically the, the baseline drug once you develop glucose control issues. So the first issue I have with this, other than the fact that the sample size to get this, these suckers approved was shockingly low, is that these medications have some potentially really scary side effects. So the product's website for Jardiance says it can have serious side effects, including increased ketones. These are just fatty acids that can be accompanied by nausea, vomiting, dehydration, abdominal pain, tiredness, breathing difficulty, allergic reactions, serious urinary tract infections, yeast infections, low blood sugar, et cetera, et cetera with things like necrotizing fasciitis, a serious bacterial infection. So also Sinjardi, the other similar drug class, you know, can only just cause vitamin B12 um, deficiency. Um, you know, not that we need B12 or anything. So this is an issue. Um, admittedly, like I don't and won't take anything for pretty much anything. In my last episode, I talked about how I was very grateful for modern medicine when I was having um, some severe complications during my son's birth. But like on a general day, not that I get headaches very often, but if I have some kind of say joint pain or tummy ache, like you won't see me taking Advil or anything like that, nor um, allergy medicine, just these kind of pills that people pop because there's always a downside, you know, and a lot of that's what's going in internally in the gut, like the gut health. And so it's just not worth it to me to have 
temporary temporary alleviation of symptoms, the price that I'm paying with what's going on in the gut, it's just not worth it to me. So I'm going to power through it. And I'm not saying don't take your medications or, you know, as I always say, you do you, but it's just not for me. So admittedly, that's my bias. But for children to be taking these serious medications that have only been studied with tiny sample sizes, you know, first questions come to mind. What is this, you know, what are the side effects of human development? Not just like urinary tract infections, human development, mental health. You know, our children already have enough challenges like to be medicating them for a condition that is caused by lifestyle and environmental factors yes there may be a genetic component i.e a carbohydrate intolerance but to just be popping pills for this when there is a clear and natural way to take care of this i.e a very low carbohydrate diet why are we doing this to our children why is this okay why is there not an uproar. I am not saying that we should have children with debilitatingly high blood glucose levels. No, that's not good for their development either. I'm not saying just let it run rampant. What I am saying is address the root cause of it, which is primarily the nutrition or lack thereof, not just pop the pills to mask the symptoms and make the numbers look better. We're not healing the condition. And this condition is reversible. So to me, this is child abuse. I realize some people are not going to like that. Fine. You have your opinion. You do you. But when I see articles like this talking about giving more pills to our children, this reminds me of the, the obesity article that I talked about a few episodes ago. Yeah. Let's just give them shots and perform bariatric surgery. Like, no. Or let's just look at root cause. And why are we never talking about that? We're just talking about this. Well, you know how pharma controls 75% of the FDA's budget? Looks real similar when you get over into the mainstream media. So that's just a little something to think about. It's a bit of a Debbie Downer, but you know what? You got to face things head on. And this here, this is BS. We should not be doing this to our children. We should be helping them. We should be nourishing our kids. Let's also talk about nourishing our pets. So y'all, today I have a very special guest. I am so excited to talk <laughs> to Daniel, who you see here if you're watching YouTube. I just spent a few minutes all burned up about children with type 2 diabetes and the FDA's approval of this class of drugs. And I will say that it's not just our children who are metabolically sick, it's our freaking pets. And that's why Daniel is here, because Daniel is focused in his business on canine nutrition. So welcome to the podcast, Daniel. You are a canine low-carb advocate. I have a great big newfie named Travis the Noof. He eats Travis? <laughs> Travis the Noof. He eats eggs cooked in coconut oil, lots of beef for dinner, and chicken necks for the calcium and the bones. And I am just so excited because I meet all kinds of human low-carb advocates for, for human nutrition, but you're my first canine proponent. So tell us, why are you in this space? What do you do? Who are you? Yeah, thanks for having me, Dixie. We have already so much in common that it's kind of like a joke um, because like I was saying earlier, I'm a big dog person also in that I am a, I, a, I'm a St. Bernard person. So I got, you know, hundred plus pound giant breed dogs also. And moreover, I didn't know that your dog was named Travis. I'm also a proponent of dog names that don't end in Y. My dog is named Wayne and it is like, yeah, I, I prefer a nice human name that doesn't sound like a cartoon character or something like that. So anyhow, but yeah, I'm a dog, uh, dog low carb guy. I, uh, I, to answer your question directly, I got into it because I started working on what was a personal project um, 
pertaining to doggy nutrition when I was nothing but a dog owner and a lawyer, but it eventually blossomed into a four-year book project about canine nutrition stuff, about basically why this small cluster of issues pertaining to body composition, metabolism, and obesity seemed to me to being to be misrepresented and misunderstood in the veterinary community and the lay public. And it, this was like uh, the period running up to 2016. I published the book in 2016. It's called Dogs, Dog Food, and Dogma. Um, and it uh, basically, like at that time, like the um, Gary Taubes of the world had written big books. And um, there were, it wasn't the case that there were, uh, this was before the era of TikTok, but there weren't like hundreds and hundreds of folks who were dedicated to improving the public's understanding about carbohydrate nutrition, like surrounding nutrition issues. But there were dozens, you know, there were like keto, keto meant something. It was like a prefix that sort of had a, pub, a broader understanding by the public outside of the nutrition community. But there were, there wasn't that much. And there was none in the doggy world. And like, as I was, as a dog owner, growing interested in these kind of topics, trying to understand how to take care of my dog as effectively as possible, I came to understand like how, if, if, you, if you're familiar with the like story of, of the history of how low carb diets over the past decade or two have become more popular and the scientific record supporting them has kind of grown, then like you would be surprised, maybe surprised to understand that like the case is considerably stronger for the efficacy and the healthfulness of those kind of diets in dogs and cats than it is in the human world. Like there's a whole, I mean, it's just, it's a very persuasive body of evidence. Nobody had, had put together a book that set it all forward and tried to put it into a coherent theory. And so I did that. And um, then once I uh, had got that book out there, I basically founded a company that would be, that, that is designed to serve people who think the book is on the money, who are persuaded by it or who come to it with their own beliefs that are similar to the ones that I advocate for in the book. And so we make low carb dog food products and uh, I do a few other things, but that's kind of, those are the main ones. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's rare. It's like, you know, for reasons that I go into in great detail about my, in the book, and as I could talk about with you, I bet you have no shortage of guests of guest opportunities for folks from the human nutrition world that can touch on one aspect or another of carbohydrate related nutrition, exercise, chronic disease, all this kind of stuff. There are just hundreds of folks that are doing one interesting thing or another there. And I'll tell you the number of people, the reason I'm an exciting guest for you is like, there just aren't that many people doing it in the dog world. And it's absurd. Um, and the reasons for it are kind of ridiculous as well, but like, yeah, that's, uh, it's cool. So tell us more about the company you founded and sure. why people hey. should, should care about this human parents of dogs. Why do, why should we care? Well, you, um, I guess the fundamental answer is that like, if you care about your pet and obviously everyone does and you, then you're already familiar uh, with the like kind of horrible reality that is like you love these these pets these animals like they're children essentially um but they live by unfortunately even in the best cases they're all going to live such short lifespans that you're going to face this tragedy of having this proxy child pass away during your lifetime over and over again it's horrible and you are of course motivated for the animal to live uh, you know as long and healthful a life as you can reasonably, uh, given your life circumstances, support. And so my company is called Keto Natural Pet Foods, and we make pet food and treat products that support that endeavor. More specifically, we make very low carbohydrate kibble style dog foods. And that is a very, you know, these uh, again, in, in this day and age, you can find truly low carbohydrate ice cream or I don't know, soda, of course, like diet sodas and anything from energy bars, pancake mixes, like whatever human consumption vertical you're in, you can find something where somebody has tried to basically take the carbohydrate out of it and make it still taste reasonably good to be reasonably healthy. In the doggy and kitty world, that is not a thing. 
like it's us and there's since we were founded in 2017 there's one other like kind of knockoff brand doing it but until 2017 the the like mainstream perspective in the pet food industry was that you kind of couldn't make kibble without using a, a significant amount of carbohydrate aka um, filler well it's it's two things one is like every, i guess what i mean to say is like producers are very motivated to use a lot of carbohydrate in their foods because they're so inexpensive a calorie of like grain based carbohydrate in the when you're talking about the class of ingredients that are used in pet foods is like one tenth the cost of a calorie of meat based animal protein okay so like if you're a producer at baseline all else being equal you are hugely motivated to use as much carbohydrate and as little of everything else as you can so that's one reality and then the second reality is that like kibble has been the backbone of the industry for a really long time like the scoop and serve style as long as there's been a u.s pet food industry that's kind of been the most popular kind and making that kind of product is like making meaty bread, basically like little nuggets of meaty bread. You just like mix a bunch of ingredients together, like a dough, and then you heat it all up. And several of those ingredients melt down, gelatinize during that process, and they hold it all together. And so then when it dries out and the moisture is removed, you get a nugget. And it's like the same kind of process that's used to like, it's very it's similar to baking, but it's more like pasta, like making pasta. And okay. so producers for a long time thought you have to use starch in that process to get it to hold together. Like if you try to bake, like in this day and age, you can find bread that's low carb because people have very recently figured out reasonable ways to do it. But like if you were just starting from scratch and trying to make a muffin, like without putting any flour or sugar into it, you're going to heat that dough up and it just falls apart. Like it doesn't want to hold together. And so between the fact that like, that was just a, the, well, you have to use starch because that's how the dough is held together. And the fact that producers just weren't motivated to do it, there was like just none of it. And so I, having written a book that basically the main thesis of which is basically the carbohydrate is the devil for dogs and cats. It's like, wow, this would be something people would buy if we could make something that was truly low carbohydrate, um, but in a kibble style, like there's a, you can, uh, circa 2017, and it sounds like it to this day with your guys, with Travis, um, you can feed non-kibble styles of pet food. Either you make it yourself or there are commercial types of products, raw uh, and frozen or freeze-dried type products that you could feed a dog where you don't have that starch issue, where they're not making it in the same kind of way as like making bread. So you can find it without carbohydrate. Um for some people, those aren't a really good fit for a cluster of reasons. Like if you take the nutritional issues off the table, kibble is kind of like an amazing product. It's like, so it lasts such a long time. It's so convenient, so straightforward, simple, relatively inexpensive. Of course, the nutritional issues are horrible <laughs> surrounding it. So it's like, but I figured if we could make something that could match, could provide the nutritional profile of these other types of products, in a kibble style, that would be really attractive and be really convenient for a lot of people. And so that's what we did. I love it. I love it. So let's talk about ingredients because that's one yeah. of the things, um, you know, the front label of the food is always marketing. The back label, when you turn it over, is that sort of mandated how many carbs, how much protein, blah, blah, blah. But I, I don't feel like, and I'm always talking about this, like look at the freaking ingredients. If you don't understand what's in that tiny need a magnifying glass list, then you should maybe think twice before picking it up. So what about ingredients? Like, how did you formulate this? Like, and I, dare I ask, are there stinky seed oils in there? So no, there are not seed oils in there. And to my knowledge, despite the fact that the garden variety kibble that is like there's much more uh, that's similar about most kibble products than different. Uh, I don't think that that's a major issue in most kibble. Like the, the style, the process that's used to make it, I don't think they're like very additive to like, they don't improve things too much in that way. I'm not certain about that, but I am certain we don't use any in hours. Um, so I, I suppose that's good news to you. But I let me tell you, I caught something that you said that's actually not right. That's that's a kind of a big deal here, which is that you're describing a very accurate process that people often go through how they digest the content on the 
uh, label of a pet food bet. You look at the front, it's all marketing material. There's a steak, there's a wolf, beef, whatever. And then you flip it over and then you kind of got more of that, but then you have two other things. You have an ingredient list and you have a nutritional, quantitative nutritional content list. But where you were wrong is what you said is you went through, you go, there's the nutrition side where they give you the protein and carbs and all that. And that's not true. In the doggy world, one of the ways that carbohydrate has become so prevalent in dog food products is that the very industry captive regulatory body that governs what has to go on pet food labels does not require the manufacturer to list carbohydrate you content. Don't have a nutrition label like human food. Per no, se. there is one. It's just not helpful. It's like you have to put certain numbers on there, but carbohydrate is not one of them. Wow. And it's a huge glaring problem. And thankfully, after legitimately like 15 years of advocacy, soon it does look like that will be changing. If you read the regulatory tea leaves, it appears that finally is coming to a change. But like, I'm, I'm telling you, literally right now, go, go tell, you know, if you're listening to this, go look at your bag of dog food and you'll see it. Yeah, you don't have to tell consumers how much carbohydrate is in there. And that's one of the reasons why like, so they're so common is because it is perfectly intuitive. If you're a dog owner, perfectly reasonable, I mean, to pick up a bag of food. It's called beefy beef wolf beef evolution. There's a wolf on it. There's a steak on it. The, all the language is like blah, 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 blah about wolves and eating like a wolf. And even the ingredients, first ingredient is beef or whatever and bison. And it could still be and often is 40 or 50% digestible wow. carbohydrate in the nutritional profile. Thank you for catching that, Daniel. That I was in marketing, food marketing for 20 years. This kind of bullshit. Yeah, it's a big deal. Me up. It's, yeah. it's it's not even let me go let me go a little further um it's not even the worst part it's there's a there's a more glaring nutritional regulation ridiculous thing in dog food which is that motivated by entirely the same concerns the fact that kind of like industry plays a huge influence in shaping the regulatory process the fact that industry loves carbohydrate because they're inexpensive um and the fact that consumers kind of understand that carbohydrate isn't great for a dog or for a cat, even if they're not familiar with the nutritional science. Another way that manifests, not only do you not have to tell the, the consumer how much carbohydrate is in there, you actually cannot use, you are affirmatively prohibited from using the expression low carbohydrate or low starch or low sugar. Really? Yeah, they have outright prohibitions. And it's why like, so our brand is called Keto Natural Pet Foods, right? Because they, they sort of left a loophole. Like when they were crafting the regulations, it was before keto was like a fully household name. Right. And I, if it had been five years later, I think they would have just outlawed that too. But they kind of left the loophole. And so we just jumped on it and started like what people hear our product name, they understand what we're trying to do. Because if you if we didn't do that, you literally, it would literally be impossible for me to explain to a consumer what our, pro our main benefit of our product is. Like, how would I communicate to them that our product is low in carbohydrate content? I can't say it generically. I'm not, I can't list it in their uh, nutrition, quantitative nutritional information panel. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's some evil genius stuff, but it's really impactful. And so it's, it's a big part of the reason why there's so many, there's so much like, uh, misunderstanding around around this stuff when it comes to like average pet owners it's like a very i'm very sympathetic with the situation because it's like it's been thought through really carefully by really thought uh smart and deeply pocketed and well-resourced and really motivated folks um and consumers bear the cost and dogs so y'all it's even worse in canine nutrition. I didn't think it could get any worse than human nutrition. Oh, it's worse. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's worse. It's worse. So let's talk about that. I'm going to combine two questions. How sick are our dogs? And then why should, you know, you mentioned people sort of intuitively know, you know, maybe my dog shouldn't be having a huge carbohydrate starchy diet, but why are they so sick and why should they avoid carbohydrates? Um, okay, so so sick. It, let's start there. The main thrust of my book is the disease obesity. It touches on a, a variety of other things. But what I kind of set out to do once it 
it made the leap from personal project about how to take care of my dog well to a book that I was going to put together for other people to learn. What it was basically when I discovered some of these like hard hitting facts around obesity in dogs in the Western world. And they are, there are two of them that I like to highlight because they're the two that blew my mind. Number one is reasonably intuitive, but the significance of it sometimes blows people away. Being moderately overweight. So like not colossal, like not the kind of body composition where 10 out of 10 people would be like, that dog is too fat, like moderately overweight, where maybe five out of 10 people would be like, yeah, I think that dog is too fat. And the other five would be like, yeah, that's probably fine is worse for a dog in terms of lifespan than an entire lifetime of smoking is for a person. If you smoke starting at age 18, your lifespan is likely to decrease on average by something like, I think it's 13 to 14%. If your dog is moderately overweight, so as a body composition, that's like, okay, maybe not great. It's lifespan. Obviously the animal lives a shorter amount of time, but it's lifespan is likely to be impacted much more significantly than that. They live considerably shorter. Similarly, they get all the kind of chronic diseases that kill more directly, right? Things like cancer and metabolic problems that are like associated with death in their own earlier as well. Like all that stuff starts showing up earlier and people, a limited number of people have done this kind of experimental work where they just like start with litters of puppies and follow them throughout their entire lifespan and just log disease frequency, lifespan, and a cluster of other kind of like biomarker stuff. And just look at like quantitative measurements having to do with like what these animals are like, how they live and where they live and what their body composition is. And yeah, fat dogs are worse than being a smoker. And so it's like, wow, that's pretty bad. You'd think this is something people are all over and taken care of. We all love our dogs. It's absurd. They die young, but more than half of the dogs in the United States right now are either overweight or obese. So it is not, I have never met your dog. I say this on podcasts all the time. So I hope you take it the right way. Never met your dog. Obviously you're a person that's concerned with nutrition. And so that's not, maybe this, that changes, but if I'm just a betting person and I'm just betting the base rate, I ha I'm betting that your dog is overweight or obese. It is more common for a dog to be overweight or obese than not in the United States, the majority of dogs in the country are smokers. Okay. And it's like kind of ridiculous. It's, you know, there's never been a period in history where anyone has spent more per capita on their pets. There's never been a period in history where the veterinary industry has been more well-developed and the animals have never been less healthy. So obesity is like the main problem. And Sounds uh, like American healthcare too. It's the same. Well, thing. well, so this is, yeah, of course. It's like all the same cro common chronic diseases that like occur at epidemic levels in human populations in the Western world are there in pet populations as well. And like, you know, that you have to be a sucker to think that's not, that that's just a coincidence. Um, so yeah, obesity is the big way, like the, the most glaring thing because the scientific record surrounding the consumption of carbohydrate and body composition in dogs and cats is rock solid, unimpeachable, 100% airtight. Every single time, like um, you've probably encountered in your, uh, through your, all the various work that you do, the challenge that is doing isocaloric studies in people, kind of hard, like basically trying to get two groups of people to eat exactly the same number of calories, but vary the nutritional source of those calories, whether they're coming from carbs or not, right? Over a period of time, it's hard because people like to eat a variety of foods. They don't want to live in a metabolic ward. And so the kind of work that you need to do to really get persuasive evidence that like all calories are not created equal as a matter of body composition, that's hard. In the doggy world, it's not hard. It's really easy. True. You just you have these two, two groups that are living in a laboratory environment at baseline. They're all gonna be exposed to exactly the same environment. And you can control the calories, the source of the nutrition they're getting with rigorous control. And it's just like they're living at home. It's no different for the animal. So that study, that kind of study has been done a lot in the doggy and kitty world. They take two groups, they feed them exactly the same number of calories. All that they do differently is they give one group more carbohydrate and less protein. They give the other group more protein and less carbohydrate. And they look at what happens. 
Every single time they've done the study, the same thing has happened, which is dogs that eat a lot of carbohydrate and little protein get fat. Dogs that eat more protein and less carbohydrate do not get fat. What? Every single time it's been done, that's the same thing that occurs. And yet you will not, there is not, obesity is generally recognized as a huge problem in the veterinary community. You go to the vet and you say, what's the biggest problem right now? If you could like solve one problem, snap your fingers in pets in the Western world, they'd say obesity. It's like very, it's so undeniable that they're all like on the level about that. But there is not one textbook anywhere in veterinary medicine in which you will find the little summary that I just gave you discussed in any kind of way. There is no section. Do what? Of course not, right? Aren't the well, textbooks written by pet food manufacturers? That's what well, I heard. It's, it's, I mean, I don't know if you've been listening to like my, I don't know if you've just been like digesting my stuff, but it's like, I mean, what you're describing, not, that's not a, um, like a hidden, an, uh, uh, an insinuation that, oh, I suspect this is going on. I'm going to play hard and loose with the facts and say like, oh, these guys write the textbooks because, oh, we know everybody's affiliated with them in one way or another. It's like, no, 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 it's not like that. It's like literally the most popular nutrition, veterinary nutrition textbook in use in the United States right now. If you take the book and you turn it around to the back cover, there is one image on the back cover and that image is a logo for the company Hills Pet Nutrition. I knew it. <laughs> says courtesy of Hills. And so it literally is like, could it, it's like just stand it. It's like the absurdity of it really comes home when you think of just substitute a human world analog for, you know, like what if your doc, doctor, <laughs> what if a doctor's book was like produced by McDonald's or like produced by Philip Morris? Like, you would never, and that's, it's like not a thing that we're, like in the veterinary community, the students or the practitioners are like, this is an absurd situation. We need to change it. It's very much not like that. It's sort of just part of the atmosphere to, from such an early age that it's kind of like accepted in a very uncritical way, generally speaking. So anyway, yeah, you don't see that stuff discussed. The low-fat diet prevents heart disease amongst medical students. So I do have to admit something funny to you. So I was talking to my son right before we started our interview, and he says, so who are you interviewing? And I said, so cool. This is like a canine nutrition expert. And he goes, is that that Hills science thing? And I'm like, how do you know about that company? And he said, mom, on TV, they talk about how healthy their food is when dogs have disease and whatnot. And I'm like, no, those are the people that write the textbooks that tell them to feed them kibble. <laughs> so it's full circle. Thank you. That's perfect. It is, but it's just like, I mean, you could do the mind blowing facts about that company and its role in shaping the, the modern state of, I don't even know. I always struggle. Like, how do you say like companion animal public health, like whatever that is, is shocking and just when you pair that reality with how aggressively they lean into being we are the leaders in making dogs healthy it's such a it's just i don't know the hypocrisy is just jaw-dropping the cynicism is just jaw-dropping um yeah they be, I, I don't know i could if you guys you want to talk about their history i know it's it's something we talk about in the book it really deeply. I could tell people all about that, but take this where you want to go. I could, you know, where, what well, do you want to hear more about? <laughs> Suffice it to say the human, the, this company is like Ansel Keys and his metabolic research where he had the seven countries study talking about low fat, except that he studied like 21 or 23 company countries rather, and just threw out the data when it didn't fit. So that that's that's we'll leave that there. But I, I do have something that's uh, feather ruffling for you. So my yes. research tells me that you have been ruffling some feathers and uh, perhaps exposing some uh, practices via legal proceedings. You told me your background as a lawyer. Is there anything oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. there or is this all like need to know basis stuff? A uh, little bit of in between. Basically. So one thing <clears throat> that I've done in the past 
is I where I'm not a named party, but I'm kind of like the guy that makes the stirs the drink is in effectuating consumer class action litigation against pet food companies that are putting out labels that are misleading. Basically, there's two big companies that we obtained big settlements for consumers for that basically put out stuff that is it hits in a general sense, the kind of phenomenon I was describing before. They lean too hard into using the image and language around wolves and evolution and ancestral diets, when in reality, they're selling a 40% carbohydrate product. And when in reality, wolves consume 0.0% dietary carbohydrate. And so we brought lawsuits pertaining to that issue. And ultimately, we're able to get them to cough up money that went to consumers and to change their labeling. The second way that I have been involved already that is now like I could talk about stuff that's over, basically. Sure. Um, the second one is uh, in terms of litigation is there is a um, you'll have to. I, I, the, the amount of familiarity with this one can can vary person to person. So there was an issue that was very, very front and center for any New York Times reading pet owner in 2018 that somewhat trickled off since then. And the, the issue, you nod, you seem, you seem very knowing what I'm talking about. The issue here is the FDA's investigation into a potential link between a canine heart disease called dilated cardiomyopathy and a kind of massive sector of the pet food industry. And you nod knowingly, is that so it's something you've encountered, you're familiar with? The, well, I over think, because I'm like still horrified. This is like, they, they call it mom guilt. This is new right, guilt. Is right. this brain-free stuff? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. They kind of like have changed. I bought and fed my former Newfoundland, who's no longer with us, you know? Well, yeah, there's a... Uh, so this is another issue where if you want to go there, let's go there. It's another deep, deep hole. But basically, let me explain uh, my role in it is that I filed litigation against the United States FDA that was intended to produce records that kind of hadn't been disclosed to the public. And there's there's a big federal law called the Freedom of Information Act that governs yeah. kind of like we have to produce records. And it's, yeah, it could produce lots of helpful stuff. And as far as I'm aware, I'm the only guy that's like taken that over the goal line. Like I, I've worked as a litigator for a big chunk of my life. And so like when you file a FOIA request for most agencies, if they don't want to, for whatever reason, produce the documents you're asking for, they'll kind of deny it and force you to like fight. And so they did that. And so part of the fight is you file a federal lawsuit and you litigate. And ultimately, in my case, the judge agreed with me and they said, OK, well, we'll give you all the documents pertaining to this. And that's been the basis of news reporting. And it's been the basis of stuff that I've written and that's in works that are in progress. But, uh, you know, some things I can say in generality is about what they show are that the degree of industry influence is no less significant in the FDA's investigation into this subject than it is in, in the writing of textbooks or anything else. It's like a just another arm of that with the same bad guys associated with it. Um, yeah, and you can find some of the, the like kind of key reporting that is grounded in that stuff has already been published and you won't struggle to find it. It was published uh, just about a year ago, last summer. There were two big pieces. Um, Thank you. Gosh. Yeah, those things. But I mean, it's like, I don't know. Do you have any, you have lawyers in your life? Do you have the privilege or the uh, burden of sharing your life with any of those I try to keep them out of my life because I don't want to be in legal proceedings. But yes, yeah. I have friends that are attorneys and I have called upon them when need be. I have used attorneys for things like trademarking and whatnot, but I, I try right. to stay out of them. <laughs> yeah, I don't fault that. I just mean to say like for me, I don't practice law anymore. And those are two places where my like what I used to do for a living litigating cases is something I still am doing but the use of legal knowledge generally like what you learn going to law school oh. is practice is useful in my life all you know I set up a nonprofit. it's like all about that and how that works was all informed by it so if any of your listeners are like trying to under think about the value of law school I won't like weigh in directly but you absolutely will emerge with a better sense of like how all the pieces of the world around you fit together as a matter how we've as a society agree to like structure all these conceptual things so 
you know, you I'm Daniel, I'm a perpetual student. I, I was choosing between business school and law school 15 years ago, and I chose business school. And that, I mean, that certainly helped me do what I wanted to do, but I, I begrudgingly did not go to law school or yeah. did not apply because I, of that advice, because I remember um, a mentor to me saying, you know, you would do really well, like you would love all the, the exploration, the studying, the blah, blah, but the main thing it's going to do is just take your brain and like, just expand the size, yeah. give you this context that you will never get anywhere. So you know what? I went back to school after my MBA for nutrition. Maybe I'll do law school at some point. Yeah, it's, I'll tell you who does. The people who do the best are the people, I don't know, like my age. But you go back as an adult who's been around the block a few times and you clean up there. You do. You learn a lot more. And you're. I think I agree with the advice your friend gave you because I share that perspective. But I also will tell your listeners that the practice of law, you got to practice to make a living it's there's there's that's less great than the uh than the education that's associated right. with it i would be you know? doing it just for the fun of the education there would be that's no good. practicing well to me <laughs> except I'm maybe good. suing um big food or well, that's what i mean yeah no exactly that's like if you can use it as a tool to further your own interest or interests that you believe in that's one thing but if you're a lawyer that's getting hired by clients and you like, and if you're not in a position to make the judgment on what the client, if you're too senior to be like, or too junior to be choosing those clients, that's a, it's not a fun position to be in. It's, it's a yeah. lot of work. So yeah, it's for better or for worse. I'm just going to throw this out there. It could be offensive. So if I offend any of you listeners, sorry, not sorry. That's it's straight talk on the nourishment mindset. But what you were talking about with the Freedom of Information Act I, I couldn't help myself, but I'm like, okay, so did it take you 75 years to get the information? No. I, about just three, years, <laughs> three years, basically, I think. It's, so I filed it in early 2019. They fought it for six months or something like that. I ultimately won and they said, okay, well, we're going to have to produce them. Here they come. And then day one, when I was expecting the like truck to pull yeah. up or whatever, it was a let you know a letter and it's one page letter with a CD in there and it's just like here's our first production of documents and it's like 500 pages on a CD individual PDFs and then every six weeks thereafter they'd send me another PDF with another thousand documents or whatever and so yeah that process took something like three years and we ultimately agreed to narrow down what they were going to produce because like. Uh, it was taking so long and there was, I could be more specific, but yeah, that's a, yeah, it's, that's why nobody, I think that's why nobody else has done it. It's like, nobody's like neurotic enough right. like I am to just like, I just, I'm going to keep doing this until, you right. know, I don't I'm know just here. That. I'm not giving up. Um, okay. So this, this, you know, we, I, I went right from the 75 year reference. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't look it up because then you'll really be upset. Um, here I am in South Florida. We're in gator territory. So I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to swim with the okay. gators here. Do you have anything to say about dog vaccinations? Because this is an area where I'm like more mom guilt. Like, am I doing the right thing? Like, if my baby, if I had to go back, my son, who's now getting to 10, I would do things very differently. First and foremost, I would educate myself about what the hell is being shot into him. I would also not have all these combination things like, you know, you can't really go back and say, well, what I would have done, but I, I'm really, um, I'm, I'm changed over the last few years. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with my son other than I'm going to really research I'm not just going to take things, but what about with our dogs? Cause I feel yeah. like every six months I got to go get another thing. And I'm like, does he need this? Like, yeah. So, okay. Lots of related issues. I guess the first thing to say is I have deep knowledge on a narrow range of things basically. Okay. And I do not have one things that one of the problems with the veterinary education curriculum is that it's not sufficiently deep in enough places. But one thing that's great about it is very broad. I mean, if you're a vet, you got to understand every potential pathophysiology on some level pertaining to like every species of animal other than people. Like you got to learn a whole, there's a lot of stuff. 
but you know, you compromise depth in that. And I'm kind of the opposite. I understand the variety of metabolic related conditions in dogs and cats quite well, and the rest of it significantly less. So I don't have, I will make sure I say first and foremost, like I don't have a deep enough familiarity with the records surrounding vaccines in dogs and cats to speak intelligently about it. I'll give you a little conceptual framework for how I do approach it though, which is that like in, in the doggy world, the legal stuff, and it's not like, you know, that I, I, you can not vaccinate your dog for rabies and you're not breaking the law. I don't think, but you can't bring it anywhere. Like if you want to bring your dog to the dog park or something like that, it's got to be vaccinated for that specific disease. I know that. And that disease, of course, is something that no, you you don't you do not want your like that was a public health scourge for a period of time. It's obviously, I mean, it's it's a hundred percent fatal, horrible for dog, but also on an epidemic level. If we weren't doing something to like shut that down, you couldn't keep household pets. And so, given that, and Great given example the of like. This is in the definitely do category. Yeah, that I do. I mean, I certainly do it. Like, I'll tell you that. And then the other, I mean, I guess the other side of it for me is that, and then there are a cluster of like other things where I'm just like not even conversant enough in the seriousness of the diseases. Things like Bordetella is like another uh, infectious, spreadable disease that dogs are typically vaccinated against. I don't know the literature surrounding like either. A, how ironclad efficacious they are, but I suspect that they're reasonably efficacious because these are diseases are not generally problems. Second, how important they are, like if you were to take them away, how bad a problem it would be. Obviously, it'd be a horrible problem if it was rabies. I don't understand even the significance of something like Bordetella. And three, what, I, I mean, there's no case, not in my judgment, there's no case not to vaccinate unless vaccination is doing something bad to potentially you're you're worried that it's going to do something bad like if it all it is is upside and we're just arguing about how much upside it's like well just do it whatever it's 75 dollars, do it but if it's potentially doing something bad that's another story i'm not familiar with any evidence that suggests that there's something wrong there i'm not saying that there is no cost i'm just not familiar with any evidence that there is any and the second thing on that front is that like if I'm giving advice to other people, one thing that I would say that makes sense to me is that there's a great deal of low hanging fruit when it comes to the health of your dogs and cats, where there is evidence that there are things you can do at home that the vast majority of people do not do that will improve your dog's expected lifespan materially. And to my knowledge, the case that anything that's in a vaccine is like making is going to impact things on that same degree is it, that's not there. And so like, for me, it's like deal with the low hanging fruit first. If you get through all that and you're still worried about polishing the edge and you're worried like of, of your dog's health and lifespan and like, well, you're going to torture yourself over whether the evidence supports vaccination or not deal with it then. But like, until then, like at least those other things kind of govern my own personal thinking about it. Day to day. So what, what are those other things? Well, nutrition is, I mean, like the vast majority of them pertains to nutrition. Like the, yeah, like the, I, I mean, uh, to me that I said before that the, like, it's paraphrasing to say that the thesis of my book is carbohydrate is the devil, but like all the diseases that are common, chronic, impact lifespan and are so epidemic that you can't, that they, they defy explanation. Like they're not infectious diseases and you don't see things become epidemics if they aren't infectious, unless there's kind of a singular environmental cause that's like where the environment and the genetic makeup have gotten so out of whack that something is, is causing it. Well, these all just happen to be tied to carbohydrate consumption. And so in some cases, the evidence is completely rock solid. Being fat is horrible for your dog. Carbohydrates make your dog fat. Carbohydrates are the backbone of the modern pet food ecosystem. Those are undeniable. All three of those things, no one, no, the only way to argue with them is to not engage otherwise because they're irrefutable. Others, they're somewhat less so, but they're still there. It's like, it's hard to explain why one third to 40% of dogs will get cancer in their lifetime. 
And there aren't airtight studies of the same variety that I described before concerning cancer incidence and carbohydrate consumption in dogs. But there are good, very reasonable sounding to me theories that would explain, that would support the idea that they are. You know, it's like, we know, I'm sure you guys talk about this all the time. Most tumors significantly prefer to burn glucose for their fuel, their rapid, absurd growth rates. We know that PET scans are a thing that are used in dogs and cats, just like in people, because they detect uh, where different body tissues are burning glucose. And we know that they're used to detect tumors in dogs and cats for that very reason. And so it's it seems like a very logical conclusion to me that like this very novel thing for dogs and, you know, evolutionarily speaking, dogs ate 0.0% carbohydrate for 99.99% of their evolutionary heritage. Like it's dogs and wolves. There's a big part of my book about this where it's like, I went to the Yellowstone Wolf Project, a place where one of the few places in the United States where biologists live in the field, study wolves and produce scientific research about them. And it's relevant to the discussion of like, why are these diseases of modernity happening to pet dogs? Because wolves and pet dogs are very genetically similar. They're so genetically similar, in fact, that they're kind of not even really two different species. Like it's like they are classified as two different species, but they're so similar that they can and do interbreed. Like usually if you talk to a lot of biologists, they'll say like the difference, the line between one species and another is like reproducibility. Like you can't like a hippo and a giraffe like can't mate and produce a baby. That doesn't happen. But like dogs and wolves are so similar that that does happen. It happens a lot. It's like hundreds of thousands of those animals in the United States right now. So they diverged. Their like genetic lineage has been tracked and it's somewhere there's like a little bit of controversy, but it's like 10,000 ish years ago. Okay. So hundreds of millions of years of evolution. They're the same species last 10,000 years. They split into two things. And we know because gray wolves are still out there walking around that like even today, 0.0% carbohydrate consumption. They literally can't digest it effectively. Like one of the very few ways that dogs and wolves are different is that dogs evolved over just the last 10,000 years, the ability to produce this salivary enzyme called amylase. Amylase is something that people make too. And it's an, a part of carbohydrate digestion. It's like how you break down these chains of glucose and wolves don't make it. They don't make much of it at all. And so they can't draw nutrition out of carbohydrate. So it's like, we know that for 99.9% .9 of a dog's evolutionary heritage, it took 0.0% carbohydrates in. And we know that wild canines like dogs and like other, or excuse me, like wolves and other canines, even in zoo environments, they don't get chronic diseases at the same kind of rates as pet dogs do. Like you, the lifespan of a gray wolf in captivity is like considerably longer than the average lifespan of an expected house pet. Um, and so, yeah, there's like a lot of, there's good reason. I think if you're, you can't, I can't make the statement that like the canine cancer epidemic is, a, has been shown to be a function of our widespread consumption of carbohydrate. But if I'm making decisions for my own dogs, trying to avoid cancer in them, it is more plausible than not to me. And so, it's a, so anyway, that diabetes, I know we could talk diabetes and how significant that is. We could talk osteoarthritis, like these are all things where nobody's spreading it from one to the other. And yet they're all there at epidemic levels and they all have in one way or another, a tie that goes right back to nutrition. Oh, this is spot on y'all. This is awesome. Now, one more thing to think about. Sorry. You know, you, you, well, you sort of, yeah, look, but I could boil it down. If you want my, like the end of my book, I, you don't have to read the book. If you want, people can get the book. It's great. But I'm like, getting the book. The end of it is really simple. It's like, here's what I do. Here's kind of like my, what I think of is, I don't like saying like, this is what you should do. Or this is what you need to do to make what, it. What does Wayne the St. Bernard, what's his lifestyle? Well, okay. So number one is a body composition thing. What I believe is that the evidence shows that your dog essentially cannot be too lean. That the only thing that if you want your dog to live as long as possible, you should essentially make it as lean as possible. The only thing that that presses up against at any point is if it starts losing its muscle mass, starts losing muscle mass, something has gone too far. Or if it's like legitimately losing energy and is like showing other kind of acute signs of malnourishment. But otherwise, what is 
commonly said at the dog park as, oh, that dog is too skinny. That's not a thing. Those dogs will live longer on average than a dog that is marginally fatter than them. So you want a dog where you can, you have, your dog has a long coat, so it's not going to be a thing, but like see the ribs, see the musculature, like think it's yeah. like. When he's wet though, I mean, you can see like the, I guess they're hip. I'm sorry, the waistline. Oh, I mean, he's, yeah. dude, is, dude is super lean because dude has a genetic heart problem. So we're like uber focused on just keeping him on the leaner side well you're doing the right that's the single like you can move the needle the most there uh of any issue so anyway it's like that's my main governing thing and then in terms of nutrition it's basically just like it, if you just use the rule feed as much protein as possible and the rule feed as little carbohydrate as possible in 99 out of 100 cases that'll be good there's like some refinement beyond that like, but it kind of goes into, you said before that you like prepare your dog's meals using stores or products that you buy, you don't use a commercial dog food. And so that's like, you get out, you're like graduating from that class. Like most people, if you're buying a commercial product, the amount of protein in the, even the highest protein products is less than a wolf eats. And so it's like, if I say feed as much as you can find, that's generally going to be good. The and then the third thing that I recommend is unless your budget and your personal commitment to it matches like yours, where you're willing to do like, I'm going to think about micronutrient content of the various ingredients that I'm going to put together myself and feed to my dog. If you get to that level, that's great. You can do that with, I would suggest with the help of a veterinarian, because they have, there are micronutrient issues. Otherwise, if you buy a commercial product, you can ensure that you're not going to develop any micronutrient deficiencies because there are plenty of diseases of deficiency that can occur. And one place that the regulatory regime does a nice job is like, you're not going to, you can't sell something commercially that like your dog is not going to get sufficient calcium or something like that. Like they test yeah. the product, they have well-defined nutritional profiles, much protein as possible, little carbohydrate as possible. Don't worry too much about the price point of the product, uh, lean as possible one bout of exercise a day, like one bout of like fully tongue wagging exercise a day. And that's basically all that's, that's, that's what goes on here. I love it. Y'all Wayne, I need a picture if you are okay. Oh, with please. Yeah. Wayne, well, I want to bring into the, into the podcast promotion. Do you have this with Newfoundland's probably in, in, in Florida? You do. It's like, he is, it's like having a minor celebrity. Like they're so eye catching a dog okay. that big is, you know, that like, Everywhere he goes, it's like everything kind of stops and people are just like, wow, like, look at your dog. It's so cool. And you're like, yeah, he's really cool. <laughs> Giant breeds are not for people who dislike attention and other people like if exactly. you're a you don't want to deal with the outside world do not get a giant breed because well way to say that in like the most complimentary like benign way possible like you could just as easily be like you get a giant breed you probably need more attention than the app you're probably needier for attention the average parents how i think of myself Either side. yeah so, um okay i like to end my interviews uh with what i call like our guest's favorite table side tradition. So what I mean by that, like part of my book, The Nourishment Mindset, you know, in the in the nutrition world, we can argue about different kinds of lifestyles and eating regimes and all this stuff. But where I, I think the missing piece of the metabolic puzzle is no focus on the pleasures of the table, which you see all over the world. You know, I have happened to spend more time in Europe, but that's just part of it, you know. So my favorite table side tradition is like the nightly cheers. Um good. And I'm curious for you know, because it's got to be fun. If we only talk about carbs and protein and what kind of fat and how awful seed oils are, like there, there's no fun or pleasure in that. So I'm curious for you. Do you and your home have a favorite table side tradition which could be a nightly thing a holiday i've had people tell me about dishes their mother makes anything yep. comes to mind well what i would say is this is that the the thing that is done with the most regularity that feels most like special is that anytime that my fiance and i travel the it is there there i can't think of a trip that we've taken we love to travel uh that's not organized around eating meals. Like that's not kind of grounded in, well, what are our key meals we're going to have on this trip? 
where are we going to go and why are we going to go there and what days are we going to eat them is like there, you know, I do a lot of, I like a lot of doing a lot of things, but like anytime we travel, whether it's like internationally or within the United States, it's definitely focused around that such that like, you know, when I talk to friends about what our trips are like, if it's like we do, we rock climb and do some other like outdoorsy stuff. But like, if you go to a city, basically our experience is always exactly the same, which is like, we pick where we want to eat and what we're likely going to eat. And then we perform whatever other like activities are reasonable around town to support like eating that meal more or less. Like it's like, oh, this is a very indulgent, metabolically unhealthy, if done in a chronic way type of meal. Okay, we're going to make sure that like we're going to the art gallery that's on this side of town and then we're walking to the one that's on that side of town in the afternoon and like setting, you know. So that's, is that a, that kind of qualifies as a what better way to like experience a city or a country than to like sit down at the table? Yes. And yes. What it's best if you do it with people. Like I, it's hard, I guess, to like get local people and have a true, but over a, ta- over a meal, a conversation with local people about the meal, what it means to them and what they bring to it. That's, that's the perfect travel experience. I love it. Now, Daniel, last question. Does Maine come to the dinner table under at? Is he involved in dinner or is he elsewhere? I mean, he's he constantly wants to be involved. I can tell you that much. And it is not given that, like, the dog is, you know, whatever, three and a half feet tall. It's not hard for him to stick his nose quite literally into the meal. Um, yeah, he gets like scraps cutting board scraps like meat scraps and like chopped veggie scraps we doesn't get he wants it all and it's like does how tight-lipped is is travis does he drool a lot or is he reasonably good thankfully he does not drool a lot that was how my first angling steak yeah it's yeah dude that's not just 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 like my experience was i had one saint and i would always say to people like you know, the hair is worse than you think, oh, but yeah. the drool is not. The drool is like not as bad as I expected. He's not that bad. And then I got Wayne and it's like, uh, okay, this is a dog dependent issue because the slobber is like, as it's just mind blowing. It's mind blowing. And so you, I have to like kind of consciously like remove him physically from like eating environments unless it's like really so yeah so you probably got the head shake at the end of the meal that i have <laughs> you gotta have a giant beach towel and be like no come here or like an umbrella hat is what i think about because he does it a lot he has like a, almost a nervous tick where he shakes his jowls like that and yeah it's like drool spot on the walls and like drool spot on the ceiling and like yeah. that kind of thing and so they need very niche product, but maybe that's what I'll make next, like a little oh, umbrella hat. Do, and then brand it. I love that. Yeah. Well, we could maybe collaborate or something. But yeah, Absolutely. unfortunately for Wayne, he's less involved. He would like to be more involved in the meals than he is. Let's put it that way. Well, I can't wait to get a picture of him so that we can promote All right. him with Travis. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for what you do. Like sure. there's so many dog and cat lovers. I don't have a cat because my husband's allergic. I used to have Jamal the cat. Um, I I wish I knew then what I know now. Um, But this is wonderful. This is so helpful for people to to think about it. And, you know, where can people find you, your company? If if people want to learn more, where should they investigate? Uh, Yeah, I mean, you can find my book wherever you get a book. Well, you know, any good book place. Uh, Dogs, Dog Food and Dogma. My name is Daniel Shuloff. S-C-H-U-L-O-F. The company that I run is called Keto Natural Pet Foods, and you can, won't be hard to find on the internet either. The only thing that I would suggest that people might want to look into, and we didn't really have a chance to go there on this show, is I set up a nonprofit about nine months ago that is called the Pet Food Consumer Rights Council. And you can find more about it at PetFoodConsumerRightsCouncil.org. And it's kind of so young and like, just getting up that it doesn't have like the search engine juice that like our company does where it's very easy to find. So that's like the URL for that. And we haven't had time to talk about it today. If I ever come back, I'm happy to go there. And there's a million other things we've talked about, 
But uh, yeah, it's a kind of first of its kind of organization that's trying to provide funding for understudied nutrition topics. That's sort of the idea. It's like right now, if you want to do nutritional science in the veterinary world, it's not like the human world where there's something like the NIH. It would problematic or not. That doesn't exist. There's only, only one source and in it's industry. Like you can't do work without taking industry funding. And obviously industry doesn't want to study plenty of things. And so what it's trying to do, the Pet Food Consumer Rights Council is trying to be small do dollar donor, individual, no corporations, only donation aggregator that gets used by its board of directors to fund work that's under underdone. So Pet awesome. Food Consumer Rights Council. Thank you. Cool. I will link that in the show notes along with a link to your company, your book, Thank you so much for being on Nourishment Mindset. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me, Dixie. It's nice to talk to you. I'm happy to come back. This is a pleasure for me too. So anytime you're, if you feel like you need some more, if you, once your list of doggy related stuff gets long enough again, let me know. I'll come back. Perfect. Thank right. you. Cheers, y'all.